Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. Today's episode is especially fun. It's with Courtney Mom. She's the author of several books. You might have read I'm Having So Much Fun Without You. But the one we're here to talk about today is called Touch. And Courtney got the train from Connecticut where she lives on a kind of beautiful property. And she came up to my friend's apartment, not even my own apartment, on kind of a hot, hot New York day. And we sat actually on the floor, not even on the couch, just because I think she likes to stretch out and had such a wonderful conversation. So if you hear street noise, that's why. A little about her book. Courtney's novel Touch is about Sloane Jacobson. She's an international trend forecaster And she has a Frenchman partner who believes in post-sexual sex. We open the novel with Sloane Jacobson. She is the perfect candidate to lead the tech giant Mammoth's conference for affluent consumers who prefer virtual relationships to the real thing. But early in her contract, Sloane starts picking up on cues that physical intimacy is going to make a major comeback leaving many, Sloane included, out of a job. And if Sloane goes rogue against her all-powerful employer, will she be able to let in the love and connectedness she's been denying herself? These are all the things that we'll talk about in the show. Love, desire, what it's like to live in a world that's disconnected by our phones and tech and all that kind of thing. And I hope you enjoy it. Courtney Mom is on the pod today. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're <laughs> here too. And look, these mics are quite heavy, but <laughs> apparently it's not an issue because Courtney's a polo player. Oh, Lord. Um, <clears throat> we're going to lead with that. Yeah. Um, in, in training, trying. So, yeah, I've got a stronger right arm than, than my left. <laughs> and I have, you know, she has generously come to Park Slope where we're in my friend's apartment, not even my own apartment. I'm never leaving, so tell your friend, this is so beautiful. So if you hear sounds, that is an aeroplane that just flew over and there'll probably be a lot of sirens and honking, but we are, Courtney has tea, I have coffee and we're very cosy. Very, indeed. And we're here to talk about your book, Touch, which... Uh, firstly, it made me want to go out and have sex. Oh, I know. I <laughs> yes. would like to do that too. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I thought, oh, I need to you, know, shave, though. <laughs> you know, when you don't have anyone, I don't have anyone in my life right now that mm. I can go, let's do this thing. Come yeah. on. But it's such a genuinely sexy book. Oh, thank you. I actually wonder what that would look like. Like I, I, most of my friends who are single, you know, they're, they're online dating. And so that kind of spontaneous the thing that used to happen where maybe you'd go out at night feeling a little randy, right? Or like you're feeling your oats, you, you feel that you look attractive, you're just kind of 
in it to win it, right? <laughs> and that energy might spark someone else's energy. And, you know, it works. You go home, you have a little, uh, a number, you have a little number, let's say. Like, is that still happening? I don't, I mean, I'm, I think I've aged out maybe. I'm also married, so I'm not in the hookup culture. But I slept over last night at a single um, woman's house. And <clears throat> it just seems like spontaneous touch is not happening so much. It's actually lit- litigious now. Yeah. Um, in so many ways and, and, and for good reasons to a certain extent, right? But it certainly doesn't seem like your colleagues are going to be like, I don't know, telling you that you look nice or I don't know. I really, because I live outside of an urban center, I live in the woods, I've been married a long time. I really have no sense anymore of how people are getting laid. Do you know well, what I mean? I wondered too, <laughs> reading it, I thought because I spend so much time I work at the wing, which is all women. I mean, I have so many incredible female friends. I'm not really in spaces anymore that are mixed that much. And I feel like I've lost my edge. I don't know how to flirt anymore. Really? Well, people probably don't know how to flirt with you anymore. People don't know how to flirt with each other. I think we've lost, but okay, something great did happen to me last week. I was at a dinner for a woman that I think you have to do a a conversation with. Her name's Lucy Green and she's a futurist. Oh, really? Okay. And she's just written a book about um, how big tech is taking over kind of governmental roles. But I I really think you two should kind of intersect this book with that. But I was at her book dinner and there was a group of kind of men at a table, I would say young men. I was like, and anyway, when I got out and I saw one of them, I was like, oh, he's quite cute. He's got a hat and glasses on. But this might tell you how old they are if he was wearing a cap, like at dinner. (laughs) They leave and the maitre d' I go up and he's like, oh, this, they left something for you. And the guy, it was on the back of the receipt was, it just said hat and glasses with his number. And I felt, (laughs) I felt so alive and like, this was the best night ever because something like that hadn't happened in so long and yeah. it was in real life. No, but that's a sexy way for that to happen too, you know. I mean, yeah. He didn't like mention you in an Instagram post or something. That's a really, that's awesome. Did you call him? I texted. I okay. think we're going to have a drink. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. We'll see, this but is one. Maybe this you're going to get some sex. Well, hopefully I'll get <laughs> some touch. But to bring it back to your book, like, let's talk about Sloane and who she is. And can you talk about um, her job as a trend? She's, what's the difference between a trend forecaster and what's the other one? A like trend- a trend hunter? Yes. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, this is ob- it's my opinion, but um, trend searching and forecasting of any manner has changed so much because of the internet and social media. So I used to do trend forecasting when I lived in France, and this was in the early 2000s. And um, I mean, the internet existed, but social media wasn't really this juggernaut, you know, that it is, we could almost say it wasn't a thing really. And so um, certainly companies were gathering data on consumers, but not in real time like they are now where, you know, you can, a company's um, Instagram can put out a picture and in real time you can see whether it, um, an ad or whatever the heck it is, you can see how it's, um, how people are responding to it and test out your ideas and also you're testing out trends. So there was more risk taking. So I I would say that trend forecasting the way that 
I knew it when I worked in it and how I think of it is quite far out. You're, you're truly forecasting um, years and years ahead. I mean, I used to work on projects that were about 20 years out. Um, normally we wouldn't be doing anything that was less than 10 years out unless we were doing brand ambassador type stuff, kind of testing faces. You know, back in the early 2000s, we were already urging brands to use older faces, older women, different body shapes um, in ads. So that that wasn't that far out, but mostly, I mean, I, I specialized in beauty and, and um, cosmetics. And so most of the work we were doing was based around a period 10 or 20 years from right now. So back then it was, you know, 20, 30 years when, when uh, you just couldn't go outside in your own skin, you know? So we were looking at second skin technologies, um, you know, these face masks that are quite popular now from Korea. It was, it's, it's basically that kind of thing, but you put it all over any, your wrists, any, any kind of body part that's um, sticking out to preserve <laughs> your real skin and, and then your, your real true skin will be seen in like intimate situations only, or, you know, you're always going to preserve this beautiful skin because the ozone will be so depleted that, um, you can't go out in your own skin, you know? So trend forecasting to me is, is far out in both the scope of the ideas and far out in terms of time. You're thinking far, far ahead. Whereas trend hunting, everyone's a trend hunter. Now, if you're on Instagram, you're a trend hunter, you know, you're taking a picture of a room that's not yours that you find attractive. Why do you find it attractive? Well, perhaps the, the pillows are kind of striking the right, like, you know, Santa Fe vibe or the plants or, you know, whatever it is, or, um, you're, you're commenting on your own personal brand, but with globalization and social media, everyone's a trend hunter. You know, you go to Peru, <laughs> you take pictures of these beautiful scars and the next thing you know, I, I don't know, some influencers trouncing around Paris with a scarf that goes all the way down to her toes or a poncho and then trends take off much more easily. So I don't, I don't think that trend, uh, to me, trend hunting, just the identification of trends um, is um, much more closely tied to marketing and branding now than trend forecasting used to. I don't know. I, re I have just a lot of respect for the old school trend forecasters who would be working on emotional trends. You know, it wasn't so, you know, next fall, what's the Crate and Barrel catalog? And you know, should we still have succulents in it? Or are people over succulents? I'm so over cactus. Yes, cactus. no, and as you well should be. I have, I, there's a rant, <laughs> I a know. very short, so I the rant, that. the rant about succulents and touch it, it, it it's, I think a paragraph now, it started off like five pages. I just couldn't, I just went completely crazy. And memory foam mattresses. Oh my God. I don't, yeah, I have a couple of things that I just can't like I love that. get over. <laughs> Who wants to be kind of in their body shape kind of embedded in the mattress? But apparently a lot of people, this is such a thing, like, you know, on Airbnb, I think they even have an icon now for, you know, a place that has a memory foam mattress. You're just told that these things are great and that it's what you should want. And um, people don't pause to wonder whether they, they're actually enjoying these things that we're told to want. I guess that's really the theme of the entire book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I would say if so. If we're told 
we're not meant to want intimacy anymore? Like how far do we go before we realize we've lost something so important? Well, exactly. I mean, it, it, the, the, what we, we started off our conversation about is a question I think is very, very important. Like if you just allow your phone and your social circles and the culture to tell you that the way you should be dating is letting your phone tell you via an algorithm or whatever who you should be dating. Well, your eyes are down and, and, and you're, you might be in a bar. Actually, I see this all the time, right? You're in a bar looking down at your phone about people you could potentially date when there's actual human beings around you that you don't know that maybe you're not, maybe that's not your romantic match, but maybe there's a beautiful new friendship or someone who is about to have a friend walk in the door who actually is the love of your life, but you've got your face and your phone. And I'm not disparaging. I really, I, I, I'm not disparaging online dating because it's a, it's actually, it's a beautiful tool for people, you know, where I live and I live in a really isolated place. And I want to make it clear that I don't, I don't think it's bad. I, what I think is bad is that we just sort of, many people have de facto abandoned instinct and just desire or like they don't even know how to interpret their or hear their own desire anymore because it's it's being overridden is that a word <laughs> by um our phones and what our phones think we should do and where we should go to eat and to me that's really really scary i also feel that amongst my friends and myself so many men aren't that interested in sex is that true? Really? Yes. What are they? What do they want to do with their free time? Just like I don't Netflix? know. Like they're they're all too so wounded, or so are they? Just are they? Are they like masturbating? I mean, how is everyone? I'm not sure. Oh God! I've just had a few of these instances where it's like I feel like I'm a healthy person yeah. with a. And I, I don't know, I exercise, I don't know, like, don't you want to use your body? See, I think, I think um, if there is something that I just flat out think is bad about the um, internet dating culture, it's that it has allowed uh, the skills of, like, body language is a skill. It's a communication and it's getting very rusty. Just like, let's say that you took, I don't know, Italian in high school or Spanish, um, Maybe there was a time where you were able to write a very short essay or something. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And I think people take their bodies for granted and their ability to communicate in one's own body for granted. And um, you shouldn't because people are so incredibly awkward about touch now. And it's only going to get worse with... Um, you know, with the Me Too movement, with the way I've started this sentence makes it sound like I'm not for the Me Too. I, I am, but it it's true that touching, whether in the workplace or a stranger hitting on someone is only going to get more loaded. You know, spontaneous touch is a very loaded thing right now. So there'll probably be even less of it, not more. And um, that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, obviously people shouldn't go around harassing and molesting people absolutely not but you know <laughs> I, th I really believe in touch deprivation I think it's it can make people and cultures incredibly ill and I think that we're seeing that right now I, I often wonder I, I try not to you like use too much of my uh 
compassionate energy towards Trump. But I do wonder, like, was he just not held enough as a child? Uh, you know, if someone just hugged that man, like, really strong, really hard, would he humanize it a little bit? Like, <laughs> or, or maybe, probably not, but I don't know. I think touch is so important and yeah, I don't, is, it, is that really true? Or hello, men, are you not like interested in, I, I don't know. I don't really know what, again, I'm not in the sort of dating scene, but I don't know what touch looks like, uh, romantic touch looks like anymore. I don't know how it's negotiated, um, but it certainly seems that it's not very fluid, easy or spontaneous. Well, and, and kind of veering from the sexual touch, it just made me think of, Priya Parker, I don't know if you know, she's written this amazing book called The Art of Gathering, but she told me this story. When I was starting the podcast, she gave me tips on how you kind of change the energy in a room or with yeah. a guest. And she used to be a dispute resolution, you know, person in kind of politics sure. and all these things. And she said, you find a way to touch yes. the person yeah. without, in a non-creepy sure. way. Sure, no, I've heard that as like well. But like you yeah. find a way to either, and she got it from, I think, a really well-known photographer who's who even photographed Putin in the woods, you know, and trying to find a way to like get lint off someone's shoulder or to engage in touch. Yeah. Um, brings us back to being humans and kind of, it creates a connection faster. Well, yeah, and, and it's, a, it's, I mean, it's a universal language, it, it, positive, positively and negatively, right? I mean, touch can be a very yeah. negative thing if it's not welcome. But I know, I think it's as simple as, let's say you're having people over to your house, they don't know each other. You know, it's, you could take someone's coat and just sort of let your hand maybe touch their hand in passing. And even if that wasn't on purpose, that can put a different energy. Um, and I'm not saying it needs to be a sexually charged energy at all, but I went, when I went to, um, <laughs> I don't know if they listened to this, but um, when I went to the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop back in like 2011 or something, I used to do event planning. So I get very upset when I see a potential for really great, a vibrant gathering and it's just for whatever reason not living up to its potential maybe there's obstacles there that the event organizers don't re realize are there and um they've turned things around but like back then the conference was, there was sort of an actual circle there might as well have been a red rope up where sort of the organizers and the masthead of the magazine that's where they had their drinks and all the common people had a different oh, area and the drinks were very um expensive you know like <clears throat> they were kind of new york prices for for yellowtail right and and i don't know i just <laughs> i didn't even know these people and on the third day i like sought out lance who's the head of the summer writing workshop and I was just such an asshole but I was just like can we have breakfast together please in this cafeteria and I sat down and I was like he didn't know me at all and I was like people need to be touching each other like we should be doing like pass the orange you know when you yes. keep the orange under your chin or rope pulls or you know I was coming up with all these kind of hokey summer camp games or karaoke like people need to be passing a microphone back and forth um doing ro come over come over red, just stupid things like your conference is falling apart if people don't touch each other like you guys are 
corralled on one side and, and he later, they, not, not that summer, but they did introduce like karaoke and lawn games and stuff. And he gave me some sort of shout out, like, <laughs> you know, karaoke program, like not, you know, encouraged by Courtney mom. I gave him a really hard time about it, but, um, I don't know. I was so upset because I, I just, you touch does allow you to break on through to the other side, I think. Oh, absolutely. I really think it does. Let's talk about <laughs> Roman then. <laughs> yeah. Because right. there's, we start out the book with this couple and Sloane's been living in Paris and we will get to mm. your Paris years <laughs> later. But who are they and what is this incredible suit he right. has the Zentai suit. So Roman is a, um, like a French intellectual who gives a lot of, he used to be in consumer research for Pfizer. So he was leading, um, consumer feedback groups. You know, if Pfizer wanted to launch a new men's shampoo, he would be the person who organized these feedback groups where he would ask people about what, texture they want in their hair, what odor they want to smell in their shower, you know, all these things. And he, um, he left that and he started, he started to lecture on kind of human post-sexual sexuality is his beat. <laughs> and he has started to adopt the Azentai suit, which is Japanese fetish custom as his kind of personal um, signature, right? So the Azentai suit is, um, it's a basically a full body cat suit. You get into it through this like tiny slit and it has no openings anywhere, not for the eyes, not for the mouth. Um, you just, you look like you've been dipped in pewter. There's lots of different colors. It doesn't have to be pewter, but um, some people do, but there's a, the Zentai thing is actually a, a fetish and it's been an underground culture for a long, long time. I mean, it started in, um, Asia, but even in New York, there's Zentai meetups, there's bar, you know, Zentai bars, um, there's Zentai book clubs, like people are actually... So they go in the suit. Yeah, they go in the suit and then it's sort of a frottage thing, like you can't really you rub identify... Up against each other? I have not been to one, so I mean, this is just what have I've been told. Have you tried a suit on? I have one. My husband gave me one when the book came out. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, you know, it's not my thing. I enjoy seeing out of my eyes, but I, I was doing research when I was back in trend forecasting and we were looking at second skin technologies. I was researching Zentai suits because they're so tight and they fit like a second skin. And, um, that's when I started going down these rabbit holes of Zentai research. And so the people who wear them for more than provocation wear them because they feel very, very comforted apparently by both their anonymity and the tight, tight feeling. I mean, I, I, I can understand, like, we're out where I live, it's so cold that I, at a certain point, unfortunately too soon, you know, in a couple of weeks, I start to wear long johns under everything. And you do feel a little bit, if you wear long johns, like, it's just like an all-day-long embrace. It really is like a cozy... Um, it's like weighted blankets feeling. now. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. this is all completely ties into your yeah. book about comfort yeah. and what we're going to do. And I guess they've had a lot of success with autist, autistic children wrapping them. I mean, these aren't Zentai suits, but they're they're almost like really positive straight jackets where they 
the fabric encloses a child in a self-embrace um, and and apparently they have t- really a lot of success with these sort of self-hugging suits. So the Zentai suit, I mean, if you Google it, it just looks like some crazy shocking thing that sometimes people wear at, you know, Burning Man or something. But if you go a little further, there's 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 people who wear them all the time or they wear them the minute they come home. Um, it makes them feel like their truest self, you know, I, I don't How know. How do they see if they can't really see out I would it? imagine that you, just from wearing it over and over again, perhaps that particular area starts to, I mean, you can't, you can see or a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down to the bakers or something, nor do I think you can actually read, but I mean, I imagine there's all different types of Zentai suits, but um, yeah, so for Roman, he started to wear this suit around and he and his wife have not been intimate in like, you know, an, a long, long, in many, many, many years. And um, nor does he ever intend to be sexually intimate with her again. Well, in a physical way, you know, he thinks that all sex and sexuality is now going to be uh, cyber or sexuality and that that's a frontier of the new sex- sexuality and that, Penetration's very depasse, and um, so that's fine. And a lot of people are um, resonating with his message, except for his partner, who's feeling you know totally touch deprived and would really like some affection. So when the book opens, we've got this woman who is just you know months away from forty, um, coming back to her kind of childhood home. Um, she's been estranged from her family for a really, really long time. She's got this partner who won't touch her. Um, but yet she's perceived by the world as this really successful, glamorous woman. But in fact, like things are pretty wretched, you know, things are pretty bad for her. I love in the very beginning, you know, it's like she has this intuition, you know, she goes, things aren't, aren't good here. And yet, and I think, haven't we all felt that where like how we know it's the beginning of the end, but we have to go through whatever process it is to actually get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, and do you have to go through that process? It's weird. My husband and I sometimes, um, we don't have tons of restaurants out where we live, but if we come into the city, we might try to, oh, let's try something that we haven't done before. And I can't tell you in our relationship together how many times we've been in a restaurant situation where like, it's so clear that it's going to be a really, really awful meal. And we know that before we've even, like the glasses of water haven't hit the table and the vibe is awful. The ambiance is awful. The service, you know, and we're like, we don't get to eat out a lot. So just because again of where we live and we have a young kid. And so a restaurant is actually kind of a special, special experience. And we never leave. I think once, maybe out of 30 times, we say like, this isn't really feeling right. This is probably going to be terrible and a waste of money. Let's let's just go. Know. You know, the waitress will su- survive as long as you haven't ordered anything yet. We never do it. We never do it. We never get up and go. Why? <laughs> I left a film the other day. Yeah. And I, you know, once you get out and I'm like, I fought for my time. You right. Know? No, but Yeah. And it's hard with books too. It's hard to do that. I mean, like you, I'm sure, you know, reading lots of galleys and, um, most of them are brilliant. And then from time to time they're not. And it's very, 
I don't know, as someone who works with words myself, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for me to not finish it. Oh, I've, yeah. I've abandoned them, <laughs> which is, which I feel you quite should. free you know, to you do should. that. No, but yeah, I get the, the movie thing. There was something that really struck me and we can't give too much away because there's kind of so many twists and turns, but Roman, imagine him, you know, let's imagine Roman and his suit and his non-sensualist, um, neo-sensual, yeah. Can you say that again? Neo-sensualist, you know, philosophy. Yes, philosophy. (laughs) And they're living in Paris and he says something to Sloane like, when we were in Paris, you never talked like this. You mm-hmm. never thought about this. Right. Talking about her not wanting to have kids or her kind of being on board with this life. And I thought, what is it when we come back home oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're reminded of who we might be? Yeah. What is it about that? That's like very loaded, isn't it? It's a very loaded thing for me when... Um my family's all, um, my mom's side is in Florida. My dad's in Chattanooga. My husband's French, his family's in France. And so we can operate in our lives for quite a long period of time as if we don't have family. But when they come visit, they have to come for kind of a long time because they're taking a plane to get there. And then like I, my mom's coming next week and I, I've already scheduled a therapist appointment, you know, cause like I go right back to the nine year old I was so yeah, the book, um, Sloan is returning. I mean, her job is going to be based, she's doing this consulting thing that's based in New York, but her family's in Connecticut. Her sister's in Connecticut. They're just 45 minutes away from Manhattan. Her sister's, um, you know, about to have her third child. And she basically has been estranged from the family for 10 years. And she goes, I mean, from the minute she walks in her mom's door, she goes from being all powerful, all knowing Sloan Jacobson paid tons of money, you know, driven around in a non, uh, in a self-driving car, fancy person, well-known, respected to just like just shriveling or sniveling. I should just a mess. Like she can't, she's just becomes incredibly emotional about everything is doubting, feels vulnerable. Um, and I think that when you go home, I don't know if it's like this for other people, but for myself, I'm whether home is coming to me or I'm actually going, I mean, my child home, home doesn't exist anymore, right? So I'm going into new homes that are populated by relatives. <laughs> um, I'm always confronted by the great distances between what I wish that my family life was like and what it actually is. And is there anything I can do or they can do to bridge this distance? And the answer is usually no. Like it's just too, things have actually improved a lot in my personal relationships ever since I had a child, but there's still these, I don't know. I mean, family is not, it's not like making a collage or just, you know, an art project where it's just you creating the thing. It's a communal collaborative project. You know, your parents, if you have parents or caretakers or whoever, if you have siblings, aunts, everyone's sort of bringing in their own energy to create this thing that 
you can't control. I mean, you can't really, you can think you control, but even if you decide to step away from your family and not be a part of it, as, as Sloan has more or less done at the opening of this book, it's still there happening. The family's familying along and just because you don't want a part of it doesn't mean that you're, that that's, that's an active ongoing disturbing energy that's out there. I did, I'm, I'm not sure I'm making any sense. Right. But it's, um, the, the trope of going home is something very, very important, very universal and, um, can be deeply upsetting regardless of what your age is. Well, I felt after I had finished your book last night, I sent my little sister, you know, messages Mm -hmm. because I had realized how by being away for so long, it was my dad's birthday a few Sundays ago and I wasn't there. And I noticed how actually no one expected me to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that I'll be home soon was like, We'll believe it when we see right. it. Right, yeah. And I, my dad's even said like, oh, I'll believe it when I see yeah. it. And I, how can they really believe it if you've, yeah. I mean, I've spent 11 years away and it really hit home. Yeah. All those nuances, finding yourself away from family is often what's yeah. needed so you can come back. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that maybe this is the case for you. I mean, I think that, it's very similar to Sloan, that kind of attitude, like, we'll believe it when I see it, is what she's dealing with in the book where they say, oh, you're coming back and you, you say you're going to come out and see us for dinner a couple times, like, we'll believe it when we see it. And there's all this information divulged when she does go out and have a family meal or two where she learns, like, pretty important key things that she had no idea about. And her family's like, well, why, you're not here, you're just not here, not really part of anything. Why would, why would we have told you, you know, our momentum is taking place on a completely different frequency and that yeah that's what happened to me for a while I moved to uh, Paris right after college in uh, more or less 2000 and uh, I mean in terms of my family especially with my father's side more or less dropped off the face of the earth like we didn't really my mother came to visit but not my dad and um, I mean I returned with a husband (laughs) you know like I uh, and I returned to when I left my my both sides of the family were still in Connecticut, which is where I grew up. And when I returned, they were on the brink of moving to Chattanooga, Tennessee and Florida, respectively. And um, I had had this idea. I'd been away for five or six years and I had actually started to miss my family and thought that like my fiction was sort of suffering for not, you know, being a little bit more grounded as part of this entity for better or for worse that is family I miss them I ha- you know, have a lot like very discombobulated family with tons and tons of stepbrothers and half sisters and half brothers and stepmothers and all this stuff and um, they when I left I mean my st- half sister was like two and then oh, all wow. of a sudden you know she was this person entering puberty and I I kind of wanted to see those things more. But then when I returned with this very sentimental notion that we would start doing um, in France, in in a lot of French families, or certainly let's say bourgeois French families, Sunday lunch is a very uh, sacrosanct thing that 
lasts so freaking long. You can't make any other plans. It goes into the evening. But even if families hate each other, like they do this Sunday lunch thing. And I'd gotten it into my head that we would maybe start doing Sunday lunches with one side of the family or the other. I was feeling sentimental and nostalgic and um, was thinking how great it would be that they wouldn't be that far away. We'd be in Brooklyn. So they'd all be about 40 minutes away and then returned and was given the announcement that both sides were selling the homes, leaving and moving to these far away places that I wasn't particularly excited to go, you know, visit or anything. And I was like, but wait, I made the decision to come back. You know, I, I wanted more of you in my life. And they were kind of like, it's too late. We've moved on. It was too late. I'd had my sentimentalism um, many years too late for them. You know, they didn't care. I wasn't part of the decision-making process and at all and hadn't been for a very, very long time. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, there's nothing more to say about it, really. That's just what, that's what happened to me when I returned from Paris. There was, there was the family left, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah. And I want to talk about your first novel as well and how... I heard you speaking about it and that you'd written this novel and it actually took 10 years for it to be published Mm. or Mm. you had to rewrite it. What happened? What happened? I was living in Paris and I didn't, um, I didn't study creative writing in or English in school. Um, I wasn't really in the writing workshop world. I, I studied comparative literature, didn't have any writing friends. Most of my friends were sort of translators and weird theater actors and stuff. So when I, I've always wanted to be a writer and was always writing when I got to France and in my free time, I was writing what ended up being, I'm having so much fun here without you. Um, when I had the draft, I literally was like, well, what do you do now? I just didn't have anyone to ask. So I went to a used bookshop and got some totally outdated, I don't know, the writer's God, what were they called? Some giant yellow book, Writer's Digest, something like that. That literally just had agents' names in it with their street addresses. So I started doing blind submissions and, um, oh my God, I was so green. I mean, I was sending out subject messages. It makes me laugh so hard. You know, like the book you need now. Like just, I didn't, I was like, what, 22? I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I thought I had this great book. Um, I had no one to keep my ego in check <laughs> at all. And, and, but amazingly I got, um, I did get an agent that way. And even quicker, only like two weeks later or something, he called me and he said, you know, we've got an editor interested and this was a double day and the editor started calling me on my cell phone in France, which to me was as good as like, I'm, I'm going to be famous, right? Like I've got this editor calling me all the way in France and I've got her number and we're emailing and, you know, making little jokes like this is, there was no doubt in my mind that that book wasn't going. So the idea was that I was supposed to, um, I was going to say renovate, (laughs) Um, revise it over the summer for her and make it a bit shorter. And then by that September, my husband and I had already decided we're going to move back to, you know, the East Coast. And so I thought, well, this is just freaking perfect. You know, my timing is perfect. I'm going to come back. My book's coming out. I'm going to be like, this is a big thing. And and, uh, we moved back and a week before I was supposed to go in and finally meet the, the woman in person, we got this email. And in fact, <clears throat> I was in, um, I guess it was Soho 
and I had to go to the Apple store. I think I was needed a new computer or something. I think I'd had a Dell, right? And uh, I was in the Apple store and I checked my email and I got an email that was like, I'm so sorry, but CCing my agent, I know this is unprofessional, but I've changed my mind. And I was in the Apple store like, what the fuck? I literally just got, can I say it? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like I just got off the plane more or less. And I'm supposed to be starting my fabulous new literary life in New York. And first of all, my family's, you know, decamping and now the book deals fallen through. And I think I called my then agent Matt from, from the Apple store. And he was like, I mean, this is like not cool, but this is not a problem. You know, it's the first editor and everyone's going to gobble it up and it's totally fine. It's like, it doesn't feel fine. And then no one gobbled it up. We had, we did like three targeted rounds. I think there were 18 rejections. And then he said to me, what about writing like a sexy memoir about like the people you slept with in France? I was like, yeah, what about that? I'm not writing that. And, um, and then things actually really just completely spun out of control. I could, I did not weather that disappointment well at all. I mean, I'm a real Virgo type A, like you tell me my book's coming out with Doubleday. I'm moving to New York. I'm starting this new life. Like I, I was not um, very flexible with this change in plans and we didn't last for, we were also we had no money, you know, we were really broke and I just didn't have too much of a backup plan. Like I was supposed to be starting to publish books. So we only lasted in New York, maybe a year, year and a half. And that's when we moved out to uh, the Berkshires in a log cabin. And um, yeah, that book was put into a box and I quickly wrote two other really awful novels trying to the, most of the letters were were like, it's not commercial enough. Uh, the character's not accessible. He's not likable, you know, unlikable narrator. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I won't say wasted. I won't. But I spent many, many years writing stuff I thought would sell. So, of course, none of it sold because it doesn't work that way. And then it was my third agent, um, Rebecca Gradinger, who had signed me for another project I I had I have this book that's completely written from the point of John Mayer, <laughs> which I have to do something with one day because it's kind of funny. But um, she'd signed me for that, and then she kind of pulled this <laughs> pivot where she was like, "Okay, I love this, but this is not your first book. You cannot come out the gate with this as your debut novel. It's too weird. Um, so what else you got?" I was like what the hell is this is the worst industry? Like why do people, this is just the worst. Everyone's the worst. And, um, I'm sure I hung up or something. And when you called me back and I said, well, I mean, I have tons of novels. They're awful. They're all awful. I only have one that, you know, I was proud of, but it broke my heart and I won't revisit it. And she's like, that's the one I want to see. Of course. And long story short, I mean, she fell in love with it, even though it was a bit, probably a terrible, terrible, draft written by a really egotistical 22 year old she told me this is it this is your first novel and what had happened was that I had just found out that I was two months pregnant I hadn't known that I was pregnant um, it was kind of a little bit of a not I won't say a mistake but it was a little bit of a happy accident and um I was like oh my god if I'm gonna revise this like I have to do it right now yeah. because I had I hadn't really wanted to be a mother. So the idea of what was waiting for me six or seven months down the road was just like, could perhaps it's the end of my creative life. I just didn't know what to think. So I thought, 
I have to do it while this baby's, you know, lodging inside me. I have to, otherwise uh, it'll never, ever happen. And so I, I, I rewrote it from scratch, did however many million drafts and we sold it and everything while, while I st- was still pregnant. I went to like turbo, turbo, turbo mode. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was sort of a beautiful story. In hindsight, at the moment, I was like, this is madness, you know, but she was right. She was right to believe in that book. I'm very proud of that book. <laughs> Wait, when is the John Mayer one coming out? I don't know what to do with it. It's still sitting around. I haven't revisited it. It was a little problematic because it's truly written from his point of view. I did like a, a obnoxious amount. It's written during a period of time where he couldn't speak. So it's a mute John Mayer trying to find himself in the desert. I know. <laughs> Maybe you should send it to him and he'd really I tried, like it. I tried. I knew a guy from from high school who was really good friends with his lawyer. It's probably like in his car at some point. It, it you know, got to his music manager because a lot of the publishers were like, we kind of need him to sign off on this. So, John, if you're listening, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that book. I don't know what to do with that book. But yeah, I don't know. It's in the box. <laughs> So you mentioned that you moved to the log cabin in the Berkshires. <laughs> yeah. Now you're in Connecticut. It's for sale if anyone needs a log cabin in the Berkshires. <laughs> you never know. Um, but you've created this amazing um, retreat uh, yeah. called The Cabins. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? And a little yeah. bit maybe the um, connection with your husband as a filmmaker. Yeah, definitely. The, the, um, the, the Cabins is like a collaborative learning retreat and it's an idea a passion I kind of had for a long, long time. My husband's a filmmaker and for a long time we collaborated on projects together and wrote films together. So accordingly, we would go on the film festival circuit together, um, mostly for like short films. And so with short films, just like with short stories, there's this amazing energy because everyone assumes they're never going to make any money, you know? So it's beautiful, beautiful energy with fantastic people. And, um, and then, you know, on the flip side, I'd be going to these writer conferences, writers conferences. And um, I was meeting people, specifically like Laura Vandenberg, who I'm just, have always been a major fan of her work. But uh, I don't know, however, 10 years ago, let's say I was reading her short stories and I was meeting directors who I thought, oh my God, you could just do something with these short stories of her, that would just be so incredible. So originally I had the idea of, I wanted to do it in Joshua Tree and it was just going to be a retreat with filmmakers and um, short, short filmmakers and short story writers and just like an exchange of work and ideas and brainstorming this beautiful thing. And I just, I couldn't quite figure out the logistics, mostly because filmmakers are impossible. You can't get them to commit to anything because they constantly, there could be a lucrative, you know, reality TV show job that comes up. They just cannot be relied upon to show up. Um, and it was very essential that they did show up. So I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to make it work. But then, um, when we left the Berkshires and we moved to Norfolk, Connecticut, which is where we live now, I started meeting all these um, families who had these sort of estates with like empty, you know, extra houses or extra cabins around this beautiful lake. And I started thinking like, wow, I could do it here. I could could really do it here. But I don't, I I think by that point, um, especially with the, 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 what looked like, you know, was going to be a Trump presidency. I was thinking how important it is to speak 
to communicate with people um, outside of your comfort zone and, and for artists as well, like to not get too comfortable with your own crafts and, and to learn new things. I, I really believe in like learning new things and pushing yourself um, creatively and taking the time you know, it's just, it's, again, it's a cell phone culture thing. Like we only go, we only watch what we want to watch. We eat what we want to eat. Most of the time we do, we, we date who we pick out of a little basket in our phone. And I, I thought, gosh, it'd be really beautiful to have all these interdisciplinary people come and you, you must sit through a class. So like, when I say it's a, um, a learning exchange program, everyone who comes, we only take nine people. Um, everyone teaches a creative session in the subject of their choice. And it just can't be self-promotional. So if you're a poet, you can't read your own poetry. You can read poetry that inspired you. But more, we're looking for classes on like line breaks or, you know, kind of specific. We've had classes on uh, approaches to translation or we just finished last week. We had wonderful classes on um, um, Portuguese uh, experimental art and film under a dictatorship. And then that same morning we did Polaroid emulsion um, technique, which is a wild for anyone listening. You can cut out your Polaroids and you turn them upside down and put them in boiling water and the picture separates itself from the plastic and you can use it sculpturally. Like you can transfer it onto clothing. You can transfer it on, you know, textiles, paper, play with the texture. We did, you know, wild things. We had a class and devised performances. We've had, we had a, this winter, we had a beautiful class on mending where everyone brought things they wanted to mend. And we learned truly useful um, I mean, we learned how to fix carpets that had been, so it's just, and it's lovely and it's in the, just a stunning part of Great Mountain Forest. It's cabins on the lake and we have, you know, um, fires and it's just beautiful. It's really, really how great. How long do people go for? It always starts on a Thursday night and checkouts Monday morning. So the, the classes um, go up till Sunday and then we have a closing performance at our town library that's open to the public. And then we do a really nice closing dinner. So it's, it's like four or five days. My goodness. Yeah, it's really nice. Sounds yeah, we've done wonderful. it four times. I really, yeah, it's great. When I think that people, I, I, it seems like people get quite a lot out of, you know, they've gone on to collaborate with each other and the, the cross discipline thing is beautiful to see. And one of the reasons I was really motivated to found the program as well was to get rid of uh, the comp, the air of competitiveness that I see sometimes in the literary world where, I mean, it's, you just can't really avoid it. So many of us are, we want the same things, you know, we want an advance that's a living amount, a living wage. We want um, our publishing house to be behind us. We want to win the prizes. We want to be invited to the same cool festivals. We, even if you're in a different genre, or, we want the same things, you know? And that can be um, hard. It can be really hard to have your own colleagues who you love and respect competing with you. You know, like you're competing with your own um, contemporaries for space in the summer roundups or the winter roundups, the best of you, you truly are competing with them. Everyone knows there's only so much space and that is, um, that is the way it is, but it, 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 it's tough. And so with the cabins, 
it's completely interdisciplinary. So you're not going to go getting all feisty with a carpenter, right? If you're a, I don't know, Spanish poet, I don't know, or maybe you will, it depends on the people, but you're not uh, professionally aiming for the same um, accolades, let's say, right? So there's a nice atmosphere. <laughs> and you have two books coming out. Yes, I do. Can you talk about, you know, what we can look forward to yeah. and when? Yeah, I'm very excited we'll about We'll definitely both these talk books. again. I'm really So the first one that is coming out is called Costa Legre, and that comes out in July of 2019 with Tin House. And um, it's a. So they're publishing it even though you said they had to do like the Orange Games. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. It's no, no, good. I finally... You're still in their good books. Yeah, we, we all became very, very dear <laughs> friends, actually. Um, th- but I was right. Yeah. I was right. You know, and now it's a, it's, it's a, it's a much better program. <laughs> I was. So, yeah, no, they are... They are they, they took me into the fold. They still don't publish anything of mine in the literary magazine, but that's fine. <laughs> no, so it's coming out. Um, and it's a fictionalized diary from the point of view of Peggy Guggenheim's daughter, the art heiress Peggy Guggenheim. Um, And it takes place right at the outbreak of World War II. In real life, Peggy Guggenheim um, basically held to expatriate some of her favorite surrealists. Hitler Hitler had this list, uh, a hit list of... um, he called them cultural degenerates, mostly artists, but some writers. And Peggy Guggenheim, most of her favorite artists that she collected were on that list. And she didn't want them to be killed or have their artwork burned. So she married some of them and then put them on boats and planes and um, got them to safety in New York to wait out the war. So that's what happened in real life. In my book, they go to the jungle in Mexico where Peggy Guggenheim has this house in this like crumbling resort. And so the whole book is written from her 15 year olds. It's a diary from her, her daughter's point of view about the things that take place <laughs> there while they're waiting to f- find out if the boat with all the other artists, cause she only, she flew over her very favorite artists. Um, you know, it's unclear if war is arriving. So it's this coming of age book of this sort of sad, but very, charming girl who has everything but her her mother's love you know it's it's um it's kind of sad but in a good way it sounds it's very different from my other two books um in some aspects and then the other book is called um well it's two books in one so there's before the book deal and then you flip it over hopefully turn it upside down and there's after the book deal and that's coming out with catapult probably in january 2020 and um it's a massive <laughs> um, pulling back of the curtain of of a publishing industry, and it's basically me like a real estate agent, kind of guiding the reader through the different rooms along the publishing timeline. And in each room, there are awesome contributors sharing their own mm. tales and advice. So um, it's very very thorough. Um, but we cover things that no one talks about, you know, from taboo topics like advances all the way to, you know, the book tour and like a big secret that people just don't talk about with book tours is that often there's hardly anyone there at the event, you know, and you've got to power through, you have to live in a life in which, uh, or live in a world in which like you're giving a hundred percent for a room of 25 people 
and the next night you're giving a hundred percent and there's just one sleeping man in the, in the row, you know, it's a, it's a, <laughs> to be published is a very strange place to be emotionally and intellectually because something that's been private for a really long time is all of a sudden so public that total strangers can comment on it. So the book is very much about dealing with these new normals and what it means to be an author in the age of social media and stuff. So that's with Catapult with um, Julie Bunton editing and she's so great. And um, yeah, I'm excited about both of these <laughs> projects. <laughs> oh my gosh, we have to leave it now. And I know we've done, we did a light touch on touch the novel. Um, but I think everyone can tell kind of what the themes are in it. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and, you know, you'll race through it. It's beautiful. And I can't wait for the next books. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the beautiful yeah. tea. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think what I got out of it, which you can probably hear from Courtney, was that all we want to do is go hug and touch people and jump into bed with people or, you know, do whatever we can to have human connection. And I've given this book to so many friends and we all have the same reaction. They want to call to talk about it. They want to get together in person you know, even to chat. It's not even necessarily about kind of sexual touch or anything like that. But please read the book. Let me know what you think. It will spark conversations amongst your friends, family, all that good stuff that literature is supposed to do. If you have any comments or questions, please be in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.